Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. And want to, you know, add my welcome as well to Janet's welcome. My name is Melissa C. And I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from New York. Um, and I always, you know, especially for this talk, um, the vision for you, a vision for you, because it it's going to tell us, like, what now? What's the vision for my life? Um, in recovery? What does this look like? And I think it's, uh, I always like to sort of start by explaining what it was like prior to this, you know, prior to needing a new vision. My old vision was, um, you know, I, I, I was always trying to figure out portion control and self-discipline. That was, I was hopeful, um, that I could kind of get this food and weight thing under control if you gave me good information about portion control and I got some self-discipline. And I, I know everything there is to know about portion control. So all the other diets that I've gone on just kept trying to re-educate me in something that I have tons of knowledge about. You know, I remembered when I was young, the first time I went to a particular program, they said, well, you know, if you can't weigh your food, you know, a deck of cards is the size that your protein should be. And I just always remembered that there was, they gave me lots of hints and lots of clues. And I, and I thought I could take that and apply it. And that would be my vision. That would be the way that I could live my life, being able to live in agreement with the knowledge that they were supplying me with and that I was paying for, right? And then, and in order to do that, I was going to get a lot of self-discipline and muscle my way through it. And it didn't work. It just didn't work for me. And actually, as I continue to try those things, my problem with eating and food increased and increased and increased so that at my top weight, I was over 300 pounds and I was suffering miserably from the consequences of this disease. And for me, it was in morbid obesity. I had dangerously high blood pressure. I had sleep apnea. I had all kinds of problems. And there's another thing too. Consequences did not get me to live in agreement with this vision that I was trying to get. Consequences don't work for me. Um, in fact, I really remember like one of my horrible, horrible nights where I could not sleep. Um, because my heart was pounding so hard in my chest and I could hear it in my ears. And I was, and I started to cry thinking about my kids. I was going to die of a stroke. I really thought I'm going to die of a stroke and my kids are going to find their mother dead in the morning. My husband's going to wake up next to a corpse really. And, um, and what did I do with that? I found my way downstairs to eat some more. Like that's what I did. Um, and at my last binge, um, I was chewing a mouthful of um, cereal, shredded wheat cereal, and it was cutting apart my gums and I was bleeding. And I could taste, it did not taste good. It actually hurt because my gums were burning as I was doing it and I couldn't stop. And I was, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was like, I was screwed. That's what I thought. Um, and so that's where this found me. That's where my life, you know, had taken me on my own. So now I'm going to jump into the chapter because I want to tell you, I don't live this way anymore. Clearly, I don't live like that anymore. On um, page 151, it says, for most normal folks, 
Drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good, but not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but distant memories and never could we recapture the great moments of the past. So what I described to you, that binge at the end, that was not, you know, what normal people eat for, right? That was not conviviality. That was not companionship. That was not colorful imagination. That was not released from anything. It was torment. It was absolute torment. You know, normal people, by the way, don't just eat for nutrition. Like I used to think, oh, well, if I were normal, I would just eat for nutrition. But actually the chapter tells me it starts off right here. For normal people, they eat for fun. They eat for intimacy, for release from boredom, from worry and care. And what I've come to discover as part of my step one understanding is that I cannot treat food like normal people do. So I can't eat food in that way. Um, food for me can't be an event. You know, I, it doesn't mean I can't like my food, but it can't be my recreation. You know, I don't engage in recreational eating. Um, normal people hang around the dinner table and they enjoy casual eating, right? Um, and way back, you know, way back before, uh, this program, you know, I used to go, and now even still, to like cocktail parties and happy hours. I haven't done that in a long time, but, um, and other ways that normal people socialized with food. And for those people, if you watch them eat in those types of situations, food is like the background music. It's sort of enhancing their experience there. And people could have a few bites and they still hear the conversation around them. And they eat to enhance the gathering. They make the gathering more fun. But when I engage in that kind of casual eating, the background noise of the food gets so loud that the only thing that I can hear is the food calling me. I cannot attend to the conversations of the people around me. And all I heard was the chatter in my brain about the food. Should I get more? I think I had enough. What if I go back for a little bit more? Will anybody notice, right? How many calories do I think I consumed so far? How many, you know, how much time on the treadmill will it take me to burn it off? Like that's the only thing that my mind would lock on. And I didn't hear anybody else in the room. So it's not social, right? And yeah, it was a, a sad realization that eating socially for me, like, popcorn at the movies, right? Spontaneous last minute decisions to eat dinner out without, you know, a thought in the world, an ice cream cone from the neighborhood stand. It was sad for me at one point to think that was something I was no longer gonna get to do. And, you know, here it was, it wasn't because some sponsor told me I couldn't, but it was because I had conceded to my innermost self that there was nothing social about my eating anymore. The disease, however, tried to convince me 
by appealing to my sense of nostalgia. And I hear about that sometimes with people. You know, they get this nostalgic feeling around the holidays or around special occasions, and they want to tie it into the food. You know, and my human desire is to feel connection, whether it's to my culture, to my family, to my friends. And my disease loves that idea that it's going to hook on to this wonderful feeling I have towards family and come in with that as the reason I get to eat, right? And here's the truth. My recovery informed me, I can't eat to socialize. For me, eating is antisocial. I cannot use food for connection and intimacy. Now, it doesn't mean that I can't eat with other people, but that is not the vehicle I use to feel close to others any longer. I actually disconnect and I can't feel close to the people near me when I engage like that. And in fact, you know, a story that I often tell at this point is going out to dinner with a very dear friend of mine who was in the uh, end of her marriage and her marriage was breaking up and she was really depressed and sad. And we went out to dinner together and my mind locked on the bread on the table and I decided to have a piece. I heard nothing my friend told me that night. It was like I could hardly attend and she was crying. She was sad and I love her. And I could, it, it was hard for me to break out of the noise of the bread, calling me to eat more, negotiating with me, right? Will she notice if I eat more? And I knew I was supposed to be concerned about her crumbling marriage, but food was my master. And my master told me, it doesn't matter. Blot out all those thoughts. And in fact, I even remember at that meal thinking at one point, it's the horrible, most horrible thing I thought was, ooh, she's so upset. I bet she'll want dessert. Like, this is how I felt about my friend, right? So if that be the case, how do I connect then? What, what's to become of me? And this chapter really could be called, now what am I supposed to do? Right now, how am I supposed to live my life in connection with others? And page 152, paragraph one says, yes, I'm willing, but am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? And yeah, I once thought that life without food and for me, alcohol would be dull. I thought I would be stupid, boring, and glum without my stuff. And I was worried, you know, I remember, you know, I was worried about how I would fit in with all the other moms in my neighborhood. You know, the people I kind of decided were cool New York moms, cool New York suburban moms, suburban moms who hang out and drink wine together. Like, that's what we do. Um, and, you know, by the way, when they have their wine, there's salsa and chips. Right. Because for me, that's what that's what alcohol does. I take a sip, but it's really about getting to the eating that's connected to it. And I was afraid of living without the food. Like, how am I going to fit in? Who am I going to hang with? And because at that point, I didn't have a sufficient substitute. But I'll tell you, when my mouth was bleeding, I was willing to do anything to get released from those bleeding gums and my obese body. And I worked the steps. 
and I found the substitute. And you know what it is? A spiritual awakening. It was a relationship with God. And it is far better than wine and salsa and chips with moms that I didn't necessarily care that much about. I cared more about what was on the table that they served. And that's the truth. Um, you know, because only, you know, and here I was, I was worried about, was I going to be boring, right? Am I going to be boring? Will those people want to hang out with me anymore? Um, you know, only an addict in the throes of the food or maybe newly abstinent believes that they're more exciting when they're eating. It's just not the case. You know, how exciting was life when I was lying on the couch, really? Because that's what it was like for me. I was lying on the couch, looking outside the window on a sunny day in my head saying someday when I'm thin, I'll, because that's how I started every fantasy. Someday when I'm thin, I'll, someday when I'm thin, I'll, um, or sitting in the car eating alone. If that's what I did too. Um, yeah, that wasn't very exciting. So what becomes my substitute and what is it? It's a relationship with God. Page 152 paragraph two says, Yes, there is a sufficient substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous, and there you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Life will mean something at last. So today my life means something. I have a purpose and a mission. And I first came to OA not because I was bored or worried or lacked imagination. I didn't think my life was lacking meaning or purpose. I came simply because I was fat and miserable and that's where I was. And I knew that I needed to do something. And yet I knew I couldn't do what I needed to do because I had lost weight before and I could not consistently do what I needed to do. And that was a big problem for me. Um, I didn't think that my life was lacking satisfaction. I didn't think that was my problem, but I remember putting the food down and feeling lonely and unsure how I could go away on a vacation or take family camping trips because vacations always meant a lot of eating and always meant overeating. Um, and camping was marshmallows and eating late at night around a campfire and drinking a lot. And and I worried, am I going to enjoy those events without the food? And who was I going to be? And I discovered life is a lot more enjoyable when food is not calling the shots. I found out who I was going to be. I found out I was going to be useful. And I was going to give rather than take. And I was going to share in the recovery that I found. And on page 153, Paragraph one, it says, how can they arise out of such misery, bad repute and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, these things have happened to me, they can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else, well, there's your direction, and be willing to make use of our experience. We're sure that they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. I love that. And how do I know our age of miracles is still with us? Our own recovery proves that. I am a walking, breathing miracle. I really and truly feel this deep down in my heart. 
And it's available for anyone, but there's two conditions. One, you must wish them above all else. You have to be willing to do this above everything else. Meaning you have to want this and put it in front of your life. And you have to use the experience of others, follow directions and examples, which is why we don't water down our course of action, which is why we don't water things down and cut corners because it would actually be leading people astray. The recovery that I've been given, freedom from the food and from my broken thinking, relieved of obesity, I've let go of more than 160 pounds and I've lived in a healthy body with a healthy mind for years now. And guess what? If a friend calls me to talk about an issue that they're having, I actually can hear them. I can actually pay attention and hear what they're saying. Even if there's bread on the table, no matter what's on the table, no one has to hide the bread from me. Food does not own me. I can go camping. I can go on vacation. I can go to water parks and have more energy enthusiasm at 54 years of age than I've ever had. I have experienced a miracle. And a miracle is an act of God. And that is what this is all about. 12 steps are a set of directions that lead us to the miracle, right? It's an invitation for God to enter and change us. And it's complete willingness to transform. And I've witnessed it in my own life and in the lives of many, many others. And so I'm gonna pass it at this point to Janet. She's gonna pick up and then we'll come back in. Hey everyone, again, I'm Janet B from New Jersey. Um, this was the first, I guess, talk that I gave with Melissa to a bunch of people. Nobody, I don't think knew me. So this is kind of how I presented myself and presented part of this chapter. So if you've heard some of these things before, set your timer for 15 minutes and take a nap. Um, a little bit of my history. I first came to OA when I was in high school, already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food. I stole money for food. And at my worst, I was binging and making myself throw up up to six times a day. Um, I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. And I know sometimes people show pictures. My picture, I would have to like, go to the, a walking dead show and find one of those pictures from there because I was like a walking zombie. I could be in a room with a hundred people and feel like I was the only one on the planet. And I continued this way, binging and purging for my first six and a half years in OA. Just going to meetings didn't stop me. Um, but after six and a half years, I was introduced to the 12 steps and the God who I believe, who we believe launches search and rescue programs for addicts. And when I surrendered my life to this God and committed to work this program, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And by the grace of God, I've been in recovery now over 39 years. And I'm always excited to talk about this part of the chapter of Vision for You, especially the story about how Bill Wilson met Dr. Bob and started Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, there's a lot of recovery principles here that I think are important that I don't want you guys to miss. Um, there isn't a ton of time, so I'm going to talk Jersey, which means like really fast, and go over some that are in this section. Um, 
The first recovery principle I want to talk about is that circumstances are never the cause of relapse. Um, circumstances are never the cause of relapse. I think a lot of us have been to meetings where people have said, or we've said ourselves, I broke my abstinence because dot, dot, dot. And there was always a reason, right? My lousy boss, my rotten husband, my annoying kids, always a reason that was outside of myself. I remember once when I was in college saying I binged because the weather wasn't sunny on a day when I wanted to go to Central Park with my boyfriend. Um, but if we're eating compulsively, it's always 100% of the time because there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. Never depends on circumstances. Remember Jim, who we read about in chapter three? He had his family, he had a job and always going well externally. But because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he got drunk. So let's return to our chapter now where our hero of the story, Bill Wilson, is introduced on page 154. The text says he was bitterly discouraged in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. I mean, that sounds really bad. But instead of getting drunk, he started Alcoholics Anonymous. Why? Because he had surrendered his life to God and therefore he was protected. See, we don't not binge because we're good or because we work hard. The only way we're able to not binge is because we're protected by God. Um, and here's some interesting history here. As a lot of us know, Bill Wilson made six phone calls from the hotel room until he reached someone who got in touch with someone, this woman, Henrietta. Henrietta was a woman who was in a spiritual group with Dr. Bob. Um, at one of those group meetings, Dr. Bob said, I think I have a drinking problem. Um, I mean, I can just picture the people like laughing behind their hands. I mean, they were too polite to like laugh at him the way we would in Jersey. Um, but no one was surprised. So they all started praying for Dr. Bob and they prayed, really believing one, that there was a God and two, that this God answered prayers. So two weeks later, when Henrietta gets this call from a strange dude asking if there's a drunk that he could help, she, she simply said, we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. They prayed in faith that God would hear and answer their prayers, which I believe is a second recovery principle. Prayer really works. It really works. Just like money is currency in the physical world and makes things happen, right? I go to the gas station, give the guy a 20, get a tank of gas or half a tank of gas. Um, faith activated through prayer is currency in the spiritual world and it actually makes things happen. That's why our second step is so important. When we come to believe that God can restore us to sanity, that's actually the beginning of us being restored to sanity. So Bill and Dr. Bob meet, and the details of their meeting are on page 155. Dr. Bob agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. Third recovery principle I want to talk about is willingness. Bill told Dr. Bob all about the recovery program, and Dr. Bob was enthused about it. He said he would do anything except, for him it was the except was, admit he was an alcoholic to his patients. 
And of course he got drunk again, because as long as we say we're willing to do anything except, and we can all fill in our own blank, we won't recover. Um, the people who recover are the ones who say, I'll do anything, period, end of sentence. Um, but as we know, Dr. Bob's story has a happy ending because once he decided that he would face his problem squarely so that God might give him mastery, God indeed did give him mastery. He stopped drinking and AA was born. His willingness allowed God to do a great and mighty work through him. The final recovery principle I wanna talk about because I think it's really important is that it's critical to understand what powerlessness is. It's critical to understand what powerlessness is. A lot of us get confused because we confuse desire with power. Um, we think that lack of desire is the problem. If I had a dollar for every time someone said about me, she just doesn't have a real desire to stop binging, I'd be a rich woman. I had the desire to stop, I just didn't have the power. And if you wanna look back later, you'll find that on page 45, it states lack of power, that was our dilemma. Not lack of willingness, lack of power. And back to our text. On page 157, Bill and Bob talk about AA number three, who they met in the hospital. AA number three couldn't understand why, even though he had a desperate desire to quit, he couldn't stop drinking. And so Bill and Dr. Bob talked about the mental state preceding the first drink. And I think it's probably the most important thing of all to talk about, the mental state that precedes the first compulsive bite. And the way I understand it is this, that normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? I remember that um, for me, I have an allergy to cats. If I go near a cat, I'm liable to have an asthma attack. So if someone invites me to her house and she has a cat, my memory grabs the data points. Oh, you went near a cat this day and you had an asthma attack. You went near a cat this day and you thought you'd be okay, but you ended up with a severe sinus infection. Grabs all the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make decisions to say, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. And that's how we stay protected. We don't cross the street when a Mack truck is coming because we've been taught, it's in our memory, Mack trucks running into a person equals roadkill, right? So what about food? What about all the times I said I was gonna buy a box of cookies, eat just one or two, but I ate the whole box? Well, stored in my brain are all these data points. You say you're gonna eat one or two and then be able to stop, but you weren't. Oh, you said you just have one, but you ate the whole box of 20 and then got another box. You said you were just going to eat one and that you didn't care what happened, but you did care. And the next morning you woke up miserable after you ate all 20. So there I went down to the Dwayne Reed to buy another box of 20 saying, I'm just going to have one or two. And my memory does its job, grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger you're not gonna be able to stop at one or two. You're gonna eat the whole box, be miserable, hate yourself, don't do it. Except unlike with cats, um, my bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. And that's where AA number three was. 
So how did he recover? And by the way, once our bridge is broken, we can never fix it. How did he recover then? How do we all recover? Um, when there's no connection between our memory and our conscious mind. Um, first, how did it get broken? Some We all wonder that, right? Because we want to know how it got broken so we can fix it. A couple doctors give a couple answers. Dr. Bob says selfishness played an important part in bringing on his alcoholism. Dr. Paul, who wrote the story, Acceptance Was the Answer, wrote a book. And in his book, he said, God stamps every 10th baby an alcoholic. So basically what they're saying is, we don't know how we became addicts or compulsive eaters. And it doesn't matter because, you know, once you turn a cucumber into a pickle, that pickle is never going to be a cucumber again. Um, so what do we do? How did AA number three recover? How do we all recover if our bridges are broken? And the answer is we build another bridge and it starts with faith. On page 158, we see AA number three saying, I'm paraphrasing, maybe God can help me, maybe. His faith started with a maybe. And I found that when we're starting out, if we're not sure God can help us, it's okay to say, maybe. And the prayer might go something like this. God, if you even exist, and if you do exist, if you even care about me, I need some help. The worst that happens is there no, there's no God and you're talking to dead air. But what if there really is a God and that prayer causes him to say, I'm going to get to work on her soul. So A number three thought there was a God. And on page 158, it says he gave his life to the care and direction of his creator and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. And that brings us to the last recovery principle that unfortunately we don't have much time to talk about. But stick around and we will go through it in depth, surrendering to the will of God as we understand God. Um, what that means is I don't live my life doing what I think I want to do. I spend my life doing as best I can what I believe God wants me to. Do I mess up multiple times a day? Yes, but that's my goal. And the beauty of this program is that for a lot of things, what I want to do and what God wants me to do used to be way far apart. It's not quite so far apart anymore as God changes our souls only as we surrender to him. So I'll summarize here. We start building our bridge to God with the little bit of faith that we have. Then we continue by surrendering to God's will. And then we clear away the wreckage of our past and working, work on helping others. And when we do that, we reap the amazing promises, including the removal of the food obsession. And as it says on page 161, we will have a vision of the great reality, capital G, capital R, our loving and all powerful creator. So there's a lot more in this story, which I don't have time to cover. The main thing that I just wanna emphasize is that recovery is 100% possible for all of us. And if we do what they did, we can have what they had. And that's the experience of God entering into our hearts and lives in a way that is indeed miraculous. And now Melissa will take us home. All right, thank you, thanks. So I'm on page 161, the second paragraph. It says, being wrecked in the same vessel, being restored and united under one God, 
with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others, the things which mattered so much to some people no longer signify much to them. How could they? And this paragraph clearly defines what it means to have a spiritual awakening, that the things that used to interest me, that the things that used to fulfill me and make me feel excited are not the same anymore. You know, when you turn your will and your life over to the care of God, God not just gets you to do the things that he wants you to do, but like Janet was saying, you actually want to. He changes the things that you prefer, the things that you enjoy. And so the things that make me excited today are different than what they used to be. And it's something that sets me apart, I would say, from the normal people as well. So yes, normal people can eat socially, but normal people, although it's great, don't have to help others in order to survive. We do. That is very much our vision is in order to survive, you know, in order to be wrecked on this vessel together, we actually have to get in the water and help other people get on the vessel with us, right? We have to become part of God's search and rescue mission. It becomes, and again, what I have to do becomes what I want to do. It just works like that. And I see today that the greatest gift that I could receive was this, this, this whole thing. That I cannot draw closer to others by breaking bread together, but I undoubtedly draw closer to others by being of service. And then page 162, paragraph three says, thus we grow. And so can you, though you be but one man with this book in your hand, we believe and hope it contains all you will need to begin. We know that what you're thinking, you are saying to yourself, I am jittery and alone. I couldn't do that, but you can. You forget that you have just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. To duplicate with such backing what we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. So if you're jittery and nervous, right, you're unable to relax. And I have to tell you, when I'm jittery, it's usually because I'm consumed with the future and with myself. How am I going to feel comfortable in this future that I'm envisioning? And, you know, you can feel jittery, jittery and alone, isolated in your abstinence. He felt jittery and alone, isolated in his sobriety. And I have to tell you, I felt that jittery alone feeling both in the food and out of the food. Now, that was my experience when I was trying to get this food thing under control, I would go to places and I would be nervous and scared and feel alone. And I would be looking at what everyone else is getting to eat and getting to do. And I would be scared and nervous and feel isolated. But when I was eating, I was also feeling jittery, alone, isolated. In a room full, I have a very big family. I could be in a room full of my brothers and sisters, my cousins, my nieces, my nephews, and I would feel alone. And, um, you know, 
I don't need to feel journey alone anymore because I have a primary purpose. And when I live in agreement with my primary purpose, which is to carry this message to the still sick and suffering, I don't need to feel jittery and alone. I know that when I am, I need only to turn towards my creator and I'm comforted. I have all the strength I need. On page 164, it says, still, you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. And I love this. You know, when I, when I read that, what that tells me is God determines who comes in my life and who leaves my life. And remember, I told you I was so nervous about those neighbors. How am I going to fit in with them? And for a time, what I found was God said, they might not be who you need to be with right now, but it wasn't a forever thing. Some of those people have entered my life again, and I'm not worried about fitting in with them when I'm with them. Instead, I'm worried more, concerned more with how can I be useful to those people there, not how can they make me feel comfortable. My mind and my heart have changed. You know, um, people are people, right? I need fellowship. I crave it. And God always provides me with the fellowship I crave. And I found that no matter what problems I've experienced in my life, God always puts people in my life who help me through these hard times, always. God also in turn provides me with the people who I can pass my experience to. And how has this happened? Well, we're told through willingness, patience, and labor. Willing, willing to be honest, willing to not worship my reputation or public approval, honest about my past, honest about my thinking, honest about my present, and patient, meaning developing the ability to tolerate the discomfort I feel as I wait for whatever it is, right? I get a little, I can, I can actually tolerate the uncomfortable feelings while I'm waiting. I can delay gratification, which is, holy smokes, addicts could never delay gratification. They needed to feel good yesterday, right? But I can delay gratification. And I allow life to unfold rather than trying to force outcomes. Labor. This program is work. It is work. Working with others, working by giving service, but the work becomes irresistible. And that's the truth. Page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. What this tells me here is I can help nobody on my own power. The best I can do is transmit the power, which means that I'm not the source. So I best spend time regularly 
connecting to the source so that I've got something to transmit. And when I hear about people who lose their recovery, sometimes they'll say, but I've been helping others. And when you press them a little bit more, very often they'll, they'll admit they haven't been spending time in prayer and meditation. So they've been using their own source of power. They've been thinking that they're the source of power and we're not. I can only transmit. I can only transmit. And I have to see to it that my relationship with him is right. My relationship with God must come first and it's gotta be right. And if so, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. And here we're told, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. So just like let go of yourself, throw yourself, right? Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. And God will reveal what I need to see and what my path is to be if I ask him, if I pray. And if I can ask, how can I help others? Step 11. If I stay close to God, I am promised great events. I abandon myself to God, meaning I give myself over. I offer myself. That's step three. I admit my faults and clear away the wreckage. That's steps four through 10. And I give freely. Step 12. This is the path so that I can trudge the road of happy destiny. This word trudging means it's deliberate. It's slow. It's steady. It's not skipping and dancing most of the time. It's not a sprint. And when I read that, it lets me know that I can live happily through the most difficult times as well. And that's my experience. I've continued to live a life full in recovery, full of loss, trials, joy, pain, and bliss. And I no longer suffer. And with that, I'll pass.